And it's also good for the person who's had that conversation because then they don't need to worry about it. It's not like, oh, what are my family going to do? Or, you know, some families, they're a bit, you know, they're, they're not as close as others. So it's a bit of a guessing game. And, and, and that makes a massive impact on someone's decision making because the decisions they take will, they'll be left with those decisions, you know, as their life, as the loved ones pass. You know, I think, was it Dame Cicely Saunders says, you know, and I will definitely get this quote wrong. You know, the, the way we end our lives or the way our, our lives end will remain in the lives, in the minds of the people that are left. Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy, and this is the Locked Up Living podcast, where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life. We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, six o'clock UK time for a fresh podcast. So today we're meeting with Leon Ancliffe. Leon has over a decade of media experience in healthcare, and he founded uh, Flix Films in 2009 with the intention to produce quality films in healthcare and to influence positive change over diverse sectors. Leon's enthusiasm for driving innovation inspired him to set up Flix VR, which I think stands for virtual reality in 2017, with the aim of pioneering the use of virtual reality in healthcare and to raise the profile of utilizing VR experiences to enhance palliative and end of life care. Today, Flix VR is at the cutting edge of 360 degree virtual reality. Welcome, Leon, thanks for coming. Thanks for the intro, David. I feel like I should maybe leave now after that. I've kind of you kind of covered everything that I've done over the last decade really succinctly. So, so thank you for that. I really appreciate it. Not at all, Liam. We're really delighted to have you on, and I know you're really passionate about what you do. So, it's really, really chuffed that you agreed to to come and do a podcast. But I wonder if we could first start with um, with you telling us how you came to be a filmmaker. I mean, was this something you always wanted to do? My actual background is uh, is arts based, so um, so I I did a HND in Newcastle, um, in musical theatre, um, and whilst I was up there, I um, I auditioned for a scholarship to uh, come to London and do a degree in professional dance. So I've done everything from ballet through to burlesque. Um, so yeah, so my background isn't predominantly film based. But I definitely feel that my life experience before I got into film definitely helped influence the, the work that I do now. So, yeah. so how did you come to end up making films then? Well, uh, when I graduated from the Dance Academy, um, I was in and out of work. I did a few shows, and, um, but there was no, no consistency to the work that I was doing. And, and I was frustrated. You know, I always want to be out there. I always want to be doing something. And at the time I was, when I, when I wasn't performing, I was working as a waiter. And I wasn't sure whether to share this story, but I think it's quite important because it kind of takes, shows you the, the journey that I went on to, to get to where I got to. Uh, but one night after um, working a shift at, at the uh, hotel, I, um, I was walking along the canal and I got uh, attacked by a group of guys and uh, they beat me unconscious. And, uh, and I woke up with my arm in the canal and, you know, they'd stolen my wallet and everything. And, 
and it really it changed me it really it really impacted my confidence um and within six months I lost lost my agent I'd worked really hard to get and I I just didn't feel I just felt out of sorts and I didn't know which route I was going to take and you know my family is really supportive and 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 they they came together and and was just amazing during that period particularly my aunt and my aunt works in healthcare and she said to me a really good way of building your confidence would be to volunteer with a charity and she was working with a charity called the National Council for Palliative Care and she um spoke to them about me and, and said that I'd be really keen to get involved in one of those projects. And at the time they were running a project in East London where they were taking five students who want to become doctors and they were spending five weeks with five terminally ill patients in a hospice and they were learning from the patients what makes a good doctor. Now I was asked to go along and just take photographs for the project, for the brochure, but every night I'd get home and they were meeting twice a week and I could not take enough pictures to capture the learning and capture the magic that was happening during those meetings. And I really want to make a film. So luckily I've got another very talented <laughs> family member who's got a, who had some experience in film. And I just said to him, look, I really want to make a film. And he says, well, get your ideas down into a treatment and, and I'll help you with that. And we'll send it to the charity and ask them whether they'd support me in making this film. And I made this film and um, basically I, followed the students and followed their journey and one of the patients died during the process and and I remember the film being shown at the hospice um it was a it was a couple of months later and it was in front of 30 people and the film the, the feeling of anxiety and I had to talk about it as well which I hadn't done really since I'd been a performer and the feeling I got from showing that film far exceeded anything I'd ever done on stage and that film went on to become a national resource for young GPs. I'm not sure whether it's still used now. Um, and that's when I thought, actually, I found a medium that ticks out all the boxes for me creatively. And I wanted to, to look at seeing whether I could really craft, um, uh, you know, developing in an area of healthcare where I, I think it was quite neglected at the time. Um, a lot of the films in healthcare at that point were not very strong and didn't, and, 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 and I thought that that area really deserved quality. Um, so there you go. I'm sorry, it's quite long-winded, but that no, is the journey. Yeah, not at all. And I'm, I'm really glad that you did share your story, Leon, because I, I do also think that's very inspirational, that, you know, that we, you know, no one's life is perfect, is it? And people encounter adversity. And actually something about how you manage that and turn it into something that you grew from, the fact that it led you to find what was your niche um uh, yeah. thing to do you know I'm sure not that you would wish to be so severely beaten up but actually the the fact that this amazing work has arisen on the back of this horrible experience so yeah thank you for thank you for sharing that with us you're welcome could you tell us about some of the film projects you're involved with at the start of being a filmmaker what kind of things were you doing then yeah so like like I mentioned, they were quite niche. Uh, so the first film that I did was um, was looking at end of life care for the LGBTQ community, um, because again, that was an area that wasn't fully understood. So mm -hmm. I, you know, I travelled around and I interviewed people, uh, LGBTQ people, and asked them about, you know, what did they want for their end of life. So we created that resource, and it became hugely uh, beneficial. Um, 
And then one of the greatest experiences I ever had was I, I created, I, I got involved with a campaign called Dying Matters. And what I love is that this, this little campaign that started out as a tiny little thing, which is a campaign which is all about encouraging people to talk about end of life and, and the importance of having those communications. And what I was commissioned to do was travel around the UK with a little banner. It was quite a big banner, actually. And I could arrive anywhere. I'd arrive in schools. I'd arrive at a hospice, uh, care homes, um, and even at individuals' homes. And I'd set the banner up. And then um, the banner says, why um, dying matters? And then the question that I asked was, why does dying matter to you? And people, I'd encourage people to come and sit with me and talk about their underlife care wishes and why dying matters to them. And we did over 100 interviews for Dying Matters. And I really think that was when I cut my cloth. I really think that's when I, I really got to understand um, the importance of having those conversations. Um, one of the things that I didn't mention was that when I was 17, um, I lost my best friend uh, in a car accident. And, um, you know, we were teenagers and, you know, we'd had a, an argument and we hadn't, um, you know, we never expected that to happen. But when I was told that he was in a car accident, the first thing I wanted to do was get to the hospital and, and say sorry and, and have a conversation with him. Um, but unfortunately, uh, he died before um, I got to the hospital and I wasn't able to have that conversation. And the immediacy and the, the end, you know, it was such a dramatic, you know, it just ended. And I think it really hit me at that point how important it is to have those conversations and subconsciously I think that stayed with me to the point where I got involved with Dying Matters because it really reminded me about how important it was for me not to have that conversation but then going forward with my own career to try and encourage that in others. I think end of life is as natural as the beginning of life and I think we need to we need to think about it in that way we need to prepare ourselves for it just as thoroughly as we do when you know we're, we're expecting someone to give birth it's it's such a precious moment um so yeah the film projects i've been involved in right early on definitely influenced me uh to this point you'll have to excuse me I'm, i i haven't had the opportunity since COVID to talk very much about what i'm doing so if i if i go on too much please feel free to reel me in no not at all i know i was, I was found what you're saying fascinating actually and especially that you use that use the expression um that if I think so, you said something like it's similar to birth and we recently had a conversation we haven't published it yet but recently had a conversation with Mike Grenville who um, describes himself as a death doula um, wow. so you know that again kind of like likening it to a, a, a passageway and a transition um similar to to birth but I suppose we what what struck us when we were having the conversation was that uh, I don't know if it, you know whether just British people but we're not very good at talking about death and yet you've you've made a career out of 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 dealing in in you know getting up close and looking at death close close up and I wondered why you were so um comfortable with that you know what it, what it is that you managed to hold on to to make that something that's to be engaged with positively rather than um be a bit frightened of it which I think is how many of us are it's such a privilege to speak with someone at that significant moment in their lives um, and also I don't think 
you'll ever meet someone at a more honest moment in, in their lives. Um, I've spoke with people at that, you know, at the end of life that have told me things that they've never expressed before, really intimate and important things that define who they are. Um, it could be sexuality, it could be um, a regret that they've had. Um, and, and in a way, it feels very, I, I get the impression that it's quite liberating for them to, to have that conversation at that time. And often people say, you know, you must have a morbid fascination, you know, I know. And, and I can't say I don't. I, it'd be wrong for me to say I don't because I am fascinated with that, that period in someone's life. I was wondering about why, um, you know, thinking about as British people, I don't think we're necessarily all that comfortable yeah. in talking about death and the fact that actually you are. And so I, th I think you answered that quite well in terms of thinking about your, um, well, I could hear in, in, in how, you, how you answered about the privilege that you find yeah. it to be with somebody in that moment. And I don't think we necessarily look at death in that way, but also struck when you, because I can imagine people asking this kind of question, you know, about a morbid fascination with death. We kind of pathologise and label it as something that we oughtn't to be interested in yeah. when we label it as morbid, don't we? Um, and, you know, maybe our language around death kind of perpetuates those kind of like structures and the resistance to engage with something that actually maybe we might we might find bereavement easier if we engage with death in a different way. I, th I think um, my fascination isn't necessarily with regards to death. It's more my obsession about living and how important it is to have conversations that give you the best possible outcome at the end of life. I think that's probably more what I'm obsessed about rather than um, it being a fascination. Um, the best end of life experiences I've seen have happened because a positive early on conversation has happened before that person's got to the point where they've been unable to have those conversations. And I think if we start thinking about it in that way, we start thinking about, let's have that conversation, maybe earlier in life. You know, it doesn't mean because you have that conversation earlier in life that things can't change, but at least you've broken the ice um, than waiting to the point where life is quite fragile and you're worried, you're worried about upsetting people, you're concerned about many, many different things at that point. And if you have the conversation earlier, it makes it easier to have later on in life, I think. And also don't think because you're having that conversation that it brings death any closer to you. It doesn't. If anything, it brings a, a dignified end of life closer should that time happen. Thank you. Yeah, I, th I think you were making a very important distinction uh, Leon, um, between, as I understood it, uh, a concern and an interest about bringing the maximum positive value to those periods leading up to to death, rather yeah. than the, the 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 act of death yeah, itself, um, which is a totally different event in a sense. Mm. Um, Anyway, sorry about that. Yeah, yeah, what you were describing there really caught in my mind in, in a quite a powerful way. Could I ask you a question? Um, have you had that conversation? I, I haven't, but I do often think about it being a sort of conversation I ought to have with my brother, who's yeah. 10 years older than, 
than me and I worry about that a lot, a lot. so uh, yeah it's it's fascinating isn't it because I, I I've tried to broach the subject with my father about my own end of life and um and he he almost disappeared he he, he, he was almost like the the ground swallowed him up and, mm. and and everything and I just sorry I, I didn't mean to put you on the spot but it's just I I, I just think yeah it's um I uh, interesting particularly with men I think that conversation is 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 sometimes even you know I don't know harder I, I don't know maybe maybe well it's just such I think it's such an important question actually and I know you know that's not something I've spoken about either and I'm wondering about listeners and whether they've had those kind of conversations with with the loved ones in their life because actually there is something about making it by opening those conversations it makes it permissible and of course we can't predict at what point we die you know even if you've got longevity in your family you could still get run over um or have some kind of like accident um and of course from the age of 40 onwards people start presenting with health problems which can be terminal don't they so you know heart attacks for instance in the 40s and 50s so actually it does feel like something we probably should be spending an awful lot more time thinking about or starting conversations about and it's also good for the person who's had that conversation because then they don't need to worry about it it's not like, oh, what are my family going to do? Or, you know, some families, they're, a bit, you know, they're, they're not as close as others. So it's a bit of a guessing game. And, and, and that makes a massive impact on someone's decision making because the decisions they take, will they'll be left with those decisions, you know, as their life, as the loved ones pass, you know. I think, was it Dame Cicely Saunders says, you know, and I will definitely get this quote wrong, you know, the, the way we end our lives or the way our, our lives end will remain in the lives, in the minds of the people that are left. Hmm. Definitely. I'm sorry, Dame Cicely Saunders. I know that's not exactly how it went, but that's the, the gist. So. No, that's, that's, that's very powerful. And again, reflecting back on our conversation with Mike Grenville, Mike spoke about how, you know, what makes it easier to, to die and why some people might at times appear to be um it uncomfortably lingering on in a way that's uncomfortable is often about conversations that haven't been said and people not being able to finish off and know that um you know that 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 there's some sense of closure um within relationships that people haven't had the chance to say what they need to say and Mm -hmm. so I guess by starting those conversations we again we make it you know we make it possible to to do death in a way that's perhaps more comfortable for everybody ourselves and and the people that are left behind when i was a kid i grew up um, and me and my mum used to walk around the reservoirs in west yorkshire but particularly ryburn reservoir um and when i went 35 i took i said to my mum look i'd love to go for a walk and i took her for a walk around that reservoir and i said if anything happens to me this is where i want my ashes to be scattered and she knew, and it was a really positive thing, you know, and that's, that's, that's what I think we should be encouraged to do, have those conversations when we can. She told me what she wanted as well. <laughs> so that was nice. That was really nice. Thank you. Yes, it, it's, yes. Anyway, look, to move on, um, and you touched on this already, but what do you think your film work has taught you about death? I'd learned a lot about how individual end of life is and, and how, um, 
how important it is to to have those conversations. Um, it's also made me think a little bit about my life and what I want from my life because I'm obsessed with my work. And when you're obsessed with your work, you know, other things in life kind of pass you by. You know, I'm, I, I don't have a family yet. Um, I'm, I'm not married, I don't have, you know, and these things are things that I think, you know, I, I've just gone 40 and I've been obsessed with my work for like 15 years now. And I think, well, that obsession is great and I'm really proud of it, but does that mean that I'm letting the other things pass me by? Particularly when I ask someone at the end of life, do they have any regrets? And they say, well, I wish I hadn't worked so much. <laughs> I wish I'd have spent more time with my family. So I, I think what I've realized is that I, you know, occasionally I need to, to think about what I want as well, um, which is, is important. D did that answer your question, David? I'm sorry. If it well, it, it answered the question partially, but it, it, it gives rise to another one, really, which is, yeah, how, how do you think you're going to go about making that decision about your own life? How do you go about... Yes, from this point in your life, you've recognised that yeah. you've been obsessed with work, yeah. um, that there are areas of your life which are left unmet, yeah. um, if not unfulfilled, unmet at any any rate. What's the next step for you? Oh, that's the golden question, David. Um, well, it's a difficult one because I think this question might come up a bit later on, but since the pandemic, I think the pandemic really made me think differently. Um, you know, I'm an independent, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a limited company, but I, I am a, a small unit, um, which means that, you know, I don't have the benefit of working for someone and the guaranteed income and, and the security that that brings. Um, so I have been reflecting on whether I might, you know, go down the route of working with a, a, a you know, working for a company that, that meets my my goals and my ethical stance on things and, and whether that I might be able to add value in that way, which will then give me the security to maybe think about what I do. Because I, I like to think, because I'm coming at it from a different area, which particularly with the virtual reality work that I do, which I'm so passionate about, you know, that is an emerging area, an emerging market now. And I think I can definitely add value in that area. Um, but it's so hard being, a, you know, being an individual working in this area. Um, so, so yeah, so I, I think in a way it there might there may be some changes, but equally when you're working for someone else, you can't be as innovative. Um, you, you know, you are restricted in that respect, and 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 I think that the reason I've been able to be so creative and innovative is because I've had the freedom to do that, um, and I wouldn't have that if I was working for someone else. So and I, I've given myself twelve months to really see what I can achieve and see whether I can really really make a difference and and. And make it, you know, significantly financially viable um, to 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 have, you know, make my own decisions in life. I didn't realise we'd go down this route actually, but it's quite an interesting one. I'm sorry about that. No, no, please so, don't. It's well, a good we'll, question. We'll let you off at that point. Well, we'll ask you to come back and tell tell us in twelve months' time. Please, please do. Please do. <laughs> so, can you tell us about some of the other film work that you've done? Well, we, you know, we've created we've created lots of work for the NHS, training dramas, uh, end of life, particularly around end of life. Um, we did a great film for the Muslim community, which looked at end of life care for the Muslim community. But uh, one of the most significant changes 
um, for me happened um, just after the ice bucket challenge. Um, I, I, I imagine all your listeners will remember the ice bucket challenge, but it was the most successful campaign that had ever been launched by any charity. And it was to raise money for the ALS Association in America, but the money was split between the ALS Association and the M&D Association, which is the Motor Neuron Disease Association. And that money had to go into training and development. And, um, and they put a tender out to film companies and we, we got that tender in, uh, in and yeah, we, we won the tender. And basically I traveled around the UK interviewing people with M&D, Motor Neuron Disease, and, and asking them how they were using technology to add quality to life. And during that period, I met an amazing lady called Sarah Ezekiel. Now, Sarah had been diagnosed with M&D when she was 36. And she, she was pregnant with a second child. And, and within nine months of, of being diagnosed, she, she gave birth and she couldn't speak. She, could, she couldn't hold the child. You know, she was you know, very, very far down her M&D journey. Um, and then M&D did what it very rarely does, but it, it stopped. And Sarah was an artist before she got much neuron disease. And she was basically left like that for 16 years. And then, and then eye gaze technology came along. I'm not sure if your listeners know eye gaze technology, but it's when you look at a screen and, and the actual screen's able to, to follow your pupils. So she's able to communicate that way. So when I interviewed Sarah, she was telling me about eye gaze technology and how much of a difference it had made. And she, she'd learned to use it so well that she'd um, learned to draw with her eyes. You know, she got that back. And honestly, if you go and have a look at her website, it is incredible. Her artwork is beautiful. But when I was doing her interview, I said to her, look, Sarah, have you got any regrets? And it's a really difficult question to ask someone who's, who's that ill, you know, who's been through what she has. And she said to me, when I was younger, I always wanted to swim with dolphins. And it just so happened that I was doing some work with the BBC at the time in 2016, where they'd literally just had some virtual reality experiences brought in the week before I met Sarah. And I was trying them out and I'm not into gaming. I'm not into anything synthetic. I'm all about real experiences. And as I was going through the library of content, I saw swimming with dolphins. And this was the week before I met Sarah. So I thought, well, why don't we try and bring them together? So I asked Sarah whether she'd like to try it. And we and she said yes. So we took her to the BBC and we and I had a little DSLR camera. So I thought, well, why don't I film this experience just to see what it's like? And we put the headset on Sarah and we set the VR experience going where she got to swim with dolphins. And it was just incredible. You know, her whole face lit, lit up. And, you know, even though she had limited mobility, she seemed to get more mobility. And, and I found that fascinating. So we took the headset off her. We set her eye gaze screen up in front of her. And I asked her one question. I said, Sarah, how was that for you? And she says, and she typed it out with her eyes. And she says, for the first time in 16 years, she felt able-bodied. And everyone in the room, you could feel the hairs on the back of your neck just stand up. And that moment, I thought, this is what I want to do. This is an area that I want to pioneer. And that's when I started thinking about how we can use virtual reality in healthcare. Um, so yeah, I started working with hospices, um, built up really good relationships with Royal Trinity Hospice. Um, the BBC did a piece on us 
where we were able, we started delivering bucket list experiences for their patients. So you had patients coming to the end of their lives and we'd ask them a question, you know, what would you like to do? And it's, it's quite remarkable actually, because in my head, I imagine that they might want to have an experience that relaxed them. But actually when you ask someone nearing the end of life, not always, but in my experience, what would you like at the, uh, an experience at the end of life? Nine times out of 10, they will want an experience that makes them feel alive. And that's incredible. You know, giving a fully able-bodied person experience is one thing, but when you're giving an experience to someone who has limited mobility and limited time left, it's something else. It's beautiful. And that is something that we started doing. And, and I'm so proud of that work, actually. Um, we did a virtual reality study, um, which was ethically approved, and it's actually been um, distributed now. Um, and we looked at tours, and then we started looking at training because my background in film is around training. So we looked at how we could use virtual reality for training healthcare professionals. And that's when we actually um, got involved with, with uh, Naomi and her team as well. So, so yeah, it was, it was an incredible journey, David. I'm very lucky that these opportunities yeah. come my way. Sounds like a really incredible experience and a terrific story about uh, Sarah. So thanks very much indeed for that. Uh, you're welcome. We've got links. We, there's a link on our website to the film where Sarah has her experience. So you get to see that moment. Beautiful, really special. We can put links in the transcript on Substack afterwards as well to all of the films that you want to. If you share those links with us, we'll, we'll put oh, them that, in so that people can find them easily. Oh, that'll um, be great. But very powerful to hear that. But I, I would just um, comment on the idea of luck. I've got a good friend who always says you you make your luck. You don't, it doesn't it doesn't happen. It's it's how you produce it in your life. Really. Um, but you did bring up um, the fact that we work together. Um, in terms of death, obviously we've just been through the pandemic. But we had you make an amazing training film or a couple of training films about how to perform a cell search in a trauma informed way. Um, and in these films, there was uh, there was uh, the film how the cell search could be done in prison cell search could yeah. be done in a way that was trauma informed, that was respectful, the person whose cell was being searched and how it could be done in a way that might be quite abrasive. It wasn't a, there was no abuse concerned, but it was it was done in a way that was a bit abrasive and not considerate of the fact it's someone's personal space and that they powerful to experience those two films you really felt as if you were in the in the cell um but sadly um because of the pandemic we i wasn't able to see it oversee its implementation what we did with you know yourself about you know creating a virtual reality training experience for prison officers uh, was informed by the prisoners which was that's why it felt real that's why it felt authentic because we started there and we moved forward um, yeah, so, and what we always do when we're creating virtual reality simulations is we always show good and poor practice. And again, there's a link on our website to a film where you get to see behind the scenes on how we, we created that. Um, so yeah, so the pandemic was huge, you know, so we, that, that was about to, to go out. Unfortunately, that, that didn't happen because obviously VR is such an intimate thing that, you know, everyone had to keep their distance. So we wasn't able to do that. And um, what we did do is we got a commission with um, Moorfields, uh, Moorfields NHS Foundation Trust, um, Moorfields Eye Hospital Foundation Trust. And, um, and what we did was, um, again, this was pre-pandemic, so it, it got shelved for two years and now, then we created it. But we created virtual reality experiences where you put on the headset and you get to experience what it's like to be a patient. 
and it's based on three scenarios um arrivals at the hospital um breaking bad news what is it like to be told you're going to lose your sight and there's nothing that can you can do about it and then also theater theater experience which is based on the who checklist and um and yeah so that um yeah and what we do is we create the virtual reality experience based on um some of the feedback from patients and then we add filters to the experience so you actually get to to experience that um, we've done virtual reality experiences on bullying you know the thing with virtual reality is it lets you it, it puts you in the shoes of those people and that we've never been able to do that like we can now with virtual reality you know when i was a kid my mom always you know i come back and i'd be upset and my mom always says well put yourself in their shoes have a think about that and with virtual reality we can actually do that now so although the, the there was a bump in the road with covid i think people now have a new respect for technology and i think virtual reality is just going to go from strength to strength and and the thing is it really makes you think about it and it also makes you feel and if we feel something when we've had an experience it's likely to to um, make us think differently about how we might speak to people so absolutely so yeah. you can see it could really lend itself around issues around diversity and inclusion yeah. as well you know, i think for a lot of white people they don't appreciate what it's like to be in a say but actually you know if you have the experience of being the only white person somewhere it might make people be a little bit more compassionate about about the the um the kind of reactions that um people somehow get so it offers an opportunity to help people have a bit more insight and a bit more compassion for for being in a, a minority group yeah one of my um someone who inspires me is called chris milk and he always says that virtual reality is the ultimate empathy machine and i absolutely believe that i i've seen people you, you who will be in a certain mindset and you give them a virtual reality simulation you take the headset off them and they might be crying or they you know and and they because they've felt for the first time what it's like to be that person and that has the potential to really change training across the board um it's 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 really it's really special actually yeah I, I love it i can't even tell you how excited i am about the way vr is going it's really really yeah. good yeah a whole new respect for it now i think and so it's been would... sorry david yeah no carry on no i, I honestly please interject I, I i will go off on a tangent if uh if, if not we love tangents um but i was going to ask you what you're doing at the moment then yeah, so we're working with a fantastic charity called Challenging M&D, um, and that's about providing virtual reality experiences for people with M&D. You know, um, a couple of weeks ago, we created a virtual reality experience for one of their service users who's, you know, she was a horse rider. She loved riding her horse. And unfortunately, um, due to the, the rapid deterioration of her condition, she wasn't able to do that. So we created a virtual reality experience of her, you know, for her, so she could ride a horse. You know, we, we're creating experiences like that, um, which, oh God, they're just beautiful and they're, they're really special. And um, we're doing a project which is, is about to go out. It's not virtual reality. It's for East Kent Hospital University NHS Foundation Trust. And that is a training drama on end of life care. And it's basically, um, shows um, healthcare professionals what the non-clinical things they can do at someone's end of life 
that can make a difference very very short so that's that's going to be launched in a couple of, well probably next month the Morefields project the virtual reality Morefields project that's going to become mandatory so anyone who uh, comes to Morefields now who's new there they will have a virtual reality experience of what it's like to be a patient um, and then finally I partnered uh, with Dr. Afosa Awubamwan and we've created something called Wellverse and Wellverse is a virtual reality solution for mental well-being and it's an app it's an app we the thing with virtual reality I feel is it feels too distant and like every theatre performer I always have my props and although I'm thrilled with the way virtual reality is coming along I still feel that it's it's distant and it, it feels almost elitist you know it feels for the tech people only and virtual reality shouldn't feel that way anyone who has a smartphone has the potential to, to have a really good quality virtual reality experience. So we've created um, an app called Wellverse. And, and what it does is it incorporates mindfulness, breath work, and other mental health services. Um, and and we, we brought them together. So basically you put on the headset and you get to experience um, like a virtual reality mindfulness experience where you, you're in a, an incredibly beautiful environment that's soothing and relaxing. And each of our experiences last seven minutes. And oh, I'm so excited about it. And it's just in an app. It's so easy. I've always said my goal is for virtual reality to be as easy as opening a book and turning a page. If we can get VR to there, then we're in a, we're in a very, very good place because it will be for everyone. So I used to have a, uh, a set like the one you just um, told us and showed us, um, but it was a very cheap thing. And, and of course, some of them are very, very expensive, aren't they? So that's obviously something of an obstacle for people. Yeah. But this cheap one I had, which, as you say, you kind of slotted your phone into it. And it was OK, you know, but uh, I didn't carry on using it because it just wasn't, you know, it's better watching the telly. Really, so. <laughs> no, that's good. Yeah, like, that's so is the technology of it or the accessibility of the best technology what is placing the remaining barrier to VR success? Yes, I think I think that's a really strong comment, actually, David. Yeah, I mean, in the future, uh, virtual reality will be as elegant as the glasses you have on your face. Truly. It will be, and it will be carried in, you know, you carry it in your pocket. You know, every, you know, you, how many times do you go out with friends and you get your smartphone out and you show them places you went around the world? Oh, have a look at my pictures, have a look at my holiday. In the future, you might not have a smartphone. You'll just have a little VR headset, a little VR device, and you show your friends and you'll put your glasses on. And it'll be as, as, as elegant as the ones you have on and you'll basically be able to show them. And that's the future of VR. That's where it's going. At the moment, I think it's going the other way. You know, I, I think virtual reality at the moment is starting to look really sci-fi. And also, you know, some of the devices are in the thousands. Um, so I know Apple, are Apple, all being well, are going to um, be um, coming to market with a virtual he reality headset this year. That's really exciting because, as we know with Apple, you know, they're dis disruptors. And that could be really, you know, great for the industry um, if they find a way of making it elegant 
and, and user friendly, which they often do. I think that could be terrific. But I'm really impressed with Meta as well, because obviously they're getting a lot of bad press at the moment, but they're continuing. They're continuing to drive with it and invest. And that's what's really important. So there are obstacles, but until VR is as, as simple as, as possible and it feels that it's there, it's tangible, um, it's, gonna, you know, it's not going to be fully adopted yet. Thank you. So before we finish, is there anything else about VR that you're just dying to tell us? Yeah, I, I'm so glad you asked, David. Um, so do you remember at the beginning of the interview, I, you asked about my first film work and I told you how excited I was about my first commission where I travelled around the UK and I asked people about why dying matters to them. Yeah. So last week, and this is something that's been brewing in my head since COVID, um, I flew over to Spain and I spent an afternoon with my great Auntie Jean. And my Auntie Jean is 92. And over the last couple of years, she's had, you know, her health has, has you know, she's had some really difficult times. Um, so what I did was I went over there and I took my virtual reality camera. And we've got lots of different types of camera, depending on what we're, you know, what we're doing. Um, and we created the first virtual reality legacy message. So in the past, we've had, you know, you might leave a letter for a loved one, or you might leave a diary, or you might record a little video on your phone or on your computer. And, you know, after you've, you've passed, that, or after you've died, and I, I use the word died because it's really important we use that word and we don't put any barriers up. And after you've died, then your loved one will have that experience. Now, my Auntie Jean has two beautiful great-grandchildren who will probably not get to meet their Auntie Jean or get to see her in her entirety or in her home and see the pictures and all the things that make her who she is. And what we did was, we I say we, it was I, we, we basically sat her down and did a virtual reality interview with her that will be able to be appreciated and experienced in the future. And it was so beautiful. It was it was really magical, actually. So um, that's my new thing. I, I really want to get out there and start offering that service, you know, virtual reality legacy messages, because I think they're going to I think they're going to be amazing. They're going to be so special. And again, it, it's breaking the breaking down the taboo around end of life. Let's have these conversations. Let's let's make it a positive thing rather than a negative one. That sounds like a really beautiful project, Leon. Actually, I can see that that could be very, very popular. Um, what, what a really lovely I hope way so. to live. Yeah, honestly, I hope so. I'm going to do one with you know my mum, my loved ones, my my father. You know, I'm, I I just I just want to have something that I can really you know in the future look back on. Um, and we can do them in different ways. We can do them if you know as if I'm sat with you. Oh, I found ways of taking me completely out of it, which then just makes it intimate between you and the person having the experience. I, I tried it at the hospice uh, pre-COVID and it was remarkable. I mean, I can tell you about that experience very briefly if you'd like. Yes, um, so there was someone at the hospice who was coming to the end of the life and I built a really wonderful um, relationship with her. And she had two daughters, yeah, she had uh, two daughters and her daughter was pregnant. And um, and she knew that she was going to die before her her she her her daughter had her child, so she wanted to create an experience. Uh, she was originally just creating a two D experience um, for her kids, um, but when I met her, I said to her, "Would you consider creating a virtual reality legacy message?" And she said, "Yes." 
And I says, well, go away, have a think about it for a couple of weeks. Because um, she was still physically looked really well as well, but she had a really aggressive form of cancer. And she came back to me and she says, okay, I want to do it in the gardens at Trinity. And this is what I want to do. So, um, so we arrived, it was a beautiful day. She loves water, so there's a little fountain coming down. And I'll just explain the experience. You put on the headset and you're sat at a table and there's two chairs in front, front of you. Well, no, yeah, there's two, one to the side and one in front of you. And there's um, a photo album literally on the table there. And as you're sat there, you look around and in the distance, you see someone sat beneath a tree and she gets up and she walks up the stairs past the waterfall and behind you. And as she passes you, she looks at you and she says, I bet you didn't expect this girl. <laughs> and then she sits down directly in front of you and she opens her photo album. And then she starts talking about these experiences, these moments that mean the world to her and that she's captured and she's put in this photo album, but she's there. So she, she reads through them and it only lasts for about seven minutes. And then she closes the album and she puts it on the table in front of you. And then she gets up and she walks off and she walks off and she just says, just now I'll always be there. And she just disappears. And it was so beautiful. It was such a magical moment. And it just stayed with me. And then, um, and that's what I really want to go forward and start really pioneering and, and encouraging going forward. So yeah, really beautiful moment. It sounds really beautiful. And uh, we're, you know, we're having a conversation about death films, but actually it's very touching and moving to hear, hear about the work you do. Thank you for, for doing, doing that work. And for joining us for a conversation today that's been brilliant oh you're absolutely welcome and and thank you for having me it's it's it really has been a, a privilege thanks very much indeed leon it has been a great pleasure meeting with you i mean you've come across in this interview as someone who's very bright very compassionate compassionate and very empathic and it's made for a great great conversation oh bless you david thank you very much that means the world